I am Will McHenry, the Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Mikhail Alexiev, a professor of political science at San Diego State University. Mikhail, uh, thank you so much for joining us for this uh, podcast. You've devoted a lot of time in the last three years to analyzing the effects of war exposure on political orientations of Ukraine's residents. What makes you believe this is an important topic? Well, this is a hugely important topic, uh, both substantively and theoretically. Uh, Substantively, because we have uh, still an ongoing war in the middle of Europe that has claimed more than 10,000 lives in the last three years. Uh, And um, uh, the uh, attacks uh, on Ukraine, responses from Ukraine's side, they, they happen daily and people get killed and injured. And of course, uh, when societies experience war, it affects them in many ways. And uh, Ukraine sits in between the European Union and Russia, so the direction in in which Ukraine goes uh, will significantly affect the future of Europe and Eurasia. Uh, And theoretically, it is interesting, uh, uh, not just for uh, Ukraine's conflict in its own right, but to understand these dynamics elsewhere. Uh, the literature on the individual level effects uh, of war on political orientations is not uh, well developed. Uh, in fact, if you, if you look at, at the literature in international relations, you will see a lot more written on how democracy affects. Uh, there's a huge democratic peace literature, whether and why democracies would wage war less than non-democracies. But does war affect democracy the other way is not all that well studied. There is, a, uh, there are, there is now only more research showing that uh, these effects are, are not necessarily simple. And, and so that's why um, looking at Ukraine as the conflict unfolds and being able to conduct surveys there and interviews and focus groups, I think actually gives, you, gives, gives me a good um, opportunity to contribute to that. You make a distinction between direct and indirect war exposure and show that they have different effects on individual attitudes. What do these findings mean for Ukraine society's potential to uphold commitment to democracy in the face of aggressive military, political, and economic interventions from Moscow? Well, um, there is, again, very little uh, done in that respect. Uh, and uh, once you start analyzing war exposure, you realize how many forms it may take. Um, it affects people um, in, in different ways. You know, somebody can be participating in the war themselves, somebody can be living uh, in the war zone, somebody may have relatives who live, visit, people may um, deal with refugees, displaced persons. So uh, it, it, it then the question arises, what kinds of uh, exposure uh, matter? And actually there is a bit of a debate. There are some studies, um, a study from Northern Ireland that showed that basically all forms of exposure affect uh, political and social tolerance the same way, negatively. But then there are studies um, showing, including uh, the study uh, by uh, Ted Gerber of Russia that actually different forms of exposure uh, with respect to Chechnya had different effects. 
And, and, but none of these uh, studies, none of these existing studies actually uh, developed a very refined set of measures uh, for, for surveys. And uh, uh, so that, that was one of the reasons why I included these detailed questions, added them to the national surveys in Ukraine. And what the finding is actually quite um, stark in that sense. Uh, war exposure, direct war exposure, that is somebody participating in the war or assisting combatants uh, or, um, you know, directly involved in some other way, mm -hmm. living in that zone, right? They, uh, their uh, political orientations uh, are affected uh, negatively. That is, they uh, seem to show less preference for democratic governance. They, they want, uh, they believe that the rule of the strong hand, you know, a couple of strong leaders can do more than rules and norms uh, of, of democratic institutions. However, people who, uh, on the other hand, uh, who experience, who have friends or relatives, family who participate in the war, they uh, seem to be more positively uh, than others. Uh, they, they, they believe democracy is important and, and they actually don't believe that the strong hand rule is, is that, is that viable. Interesting finding uh, because um, the um, at issue ultimately is the future of the political system of Ukraine. And so as the war goes on, on the one hand, if it generates more direct participants, you will have the negative effect, you will have a push uh, for um, authoritarianism and that would make Ukraine unpalatable to Europe, right? So uh, it would then serve the uh, goal uh, that Russia pursued since it started putting pressure on Yanukovych back in 2013, former president of Ukraine, to pull away from the agreement with the EU and sign a deal with Moscow. So, uh, on the other hand, uh, the, the, the hopeful sign is that indirect exposure actually does the reverse of what you might predict. And these findings uh, I obtained uh, using survey data from uh, 2016 uh, when I was also able to uh, control for different other things. So these findings hold regardless of, uh, um, say, uh, pretty much language orientation. Language may be important in some issues, region may be a little bit important, but not necessarily in a, in a stark black and white fashion. So some ideas um, may be affected if you're in the West uh, negatively, but not and the other way, not in Donbass. Some, if you're in Donbass, but not in the West. So it doesn't work in a dichotomous way that the West is always different than Donbass and, and there is this clash between the East and the West in Ukraine. But even when uh, on some tests uh, these regional uh, affiliations are important, uh, they, they come sometimes as statistically significant, they don't wipe out the effect of war exposure either. So, mm. so uh, War exposure seems to be a pretty robust kind of factor in, in terms of political orientations. Your most recent findings presented at this conference indicate the biggest determinants of social support in Ukraine for military versus non-military means of conflict resolution 
in Donbass are what you call geo-emotional, rather than economic. As the conflict trap theory would posit, can you explain what you mean by that and why it matters? Do you want to reread that question? Sure. Your most recent findings presented at this conference indicate that the biggest determinants of social support in Ukraine for military versus non-military means of conflict resolution in Donbass are what you call geo-emotional rather than economic, as the conflict trap theory would posit. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it matters? Well, this is actually what I'm presenting at this conference, and uh, the question is uh, who in Ukraine is more likely to say that we want to continue fighting until uh, Donbass territories are reclaimed versus those who say let's grant them some autonomy, let's negotiate for autonomy with them or let's uh, just abandon them or let's have some form of a blockade. And um, the uh, uh, established, a lot of established theories uh, on uh, internal conflicts with or without international involvement uh, emphasize the importance of economic factors, the destruction of the economy, the resulting poverty, the uh, worsening of governance, uh, decline of democratic governance in particular as then leading to greater proclivity for renewed fighting. So if, if those theories apply, then uh, those kinds of factors should be driving support for more military use of force in Ukraine. But what the surveys that I analyzed from 2016 and 2017, uh, Ukrainian national representative surveys, they show that this, that kind of straightforward interpretation uh, doesn't work. Uh, that um, it, it's not the, propo that the proponents of the use of military force are not the kind of people uh, who are impoverished war veterans, uh, who are, you know, insisting on exclusive use of Ukrainian language, resentful toward ethnic Russians, who want strong authoritarian rule, and at the same time, the uh, proponents of, of non-violent conflict resolution are not the kind of people who are, you know, more advanced, better off, who have not experienced armed conflict, uh, feel sort of insulated from it, who believe that Ukrainian national identity can be inclusive, uh, and who support democratic institutions. Uh, but what we do find is that um, it, the biggest predictors of violent versus nonviolent form of resolution is uh, through sharing stories of war experiences, uh, that sharing the stories and feelings of people one knows personally, socialization, perception of external threat, uh, whether the conflict is internal or Russia-driven, uh, and um, also the symbolic, the symbols uh, of war. Uh, what are we fighting for? So people who believe that the Euromaidan revolution was, is worth fighting for, people who see Russia as the aggressor, and, and people who actually know others who were affected by the war, they're more likely to continue uh, support for the military conflict. The interesting thing, though, is, and this is a mystery of what we don't, so that's geo-emotional, so it's, it's, it's 
emotional response to, to the perception of geopolitics uh, around the conflict. And another uh, reason why it's emotional is it generates a lot of uncertainty, uh, indecision. Uh, the uh, large, the, one of the largest groups of respondents actually said they cannot decide on that question how to answer about equal size of choosing each of those options and undecided. Uh, but I will um, tell you also a couple of, about that uncertainty and emotions that war exposure generates. I had focus groups um, in uh, Donbass, and I'll just read you one statement. Uh, people were discussing yeah. their experiences. And, and so this is one of the participants, uh, Ahat, uh, from um, a place called Drushkivka uh, in uh, uh, Donetsk uh, Oblast. And it says, I felt psychological stress, the tension. My neighbor from Slavyansk was evacuating his family. He was a strong, healthy guy, but two weeks after arriving from here, from there to Drushkivka, he died. So he saw a person die right in front of him. And Drushkivka was mostly spared, says Ahad, but we witnessed Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, Artemivsk and Zirzhinsk. I had displaced persons staying at my place, six of them. I asked why they were scared. One of them described what he saw. A mine or a mortar shell uh, landed on the playground by their nine-story apartment building. Uh, no one got hurt, but it stayed in the ground for a week. The whole building was evacuated. It was very hard. So these are uh, the kind of experiences. That, and, and, and it's interesting that so uh, in Donbass, uh, overall, uh, residents uh, were much less likely to support military use of force than in other regions of Ukraine. But people like Ahad, who experienced that, were significantly more likely to support the use of military force, uh, even within that region where fewer people supported. So uh, that's where uh, I had an, a survey experiment where I could um, distinguish between residents who lived in those kinds of areas where those focus group respondents were versus other settlements within the same region. And um, um, by um, 16 to 18%, you know, they were more likely to support uh, military use of force and oppose negotiation of autonomy uh, with the uh, occupied territories, I would say. So that's geo-emotional. <laughs> Kyle, that was um, fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast. Thank you, Will.